is San Francisco, the city chosen by one of the most brilliant and sensitive new generation of filmmakers, Peter Bogdanovich, for his maiden comedy effort, What's Up, Doc? Starring Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill. Where are we? I can't see! Well, there's not much to see, actually. We're inside a Chinese dragon. Any experienced observer of shooting techniques will quickly sense the utterly new and different atmosphere created on the Bogdanovich set. No more the crass showmanship and slapdash of the old Hollywood. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Hello, welcome back to Ticklish Business. This is Kim again, and I am joined by Kristen for a very special bonus episode. If you listened to our episode last week, you heard us talk about the career of Peter Bogdanovich, and we're continuing that this week with a look at his 1972 film, What's Up, Doc? And we have a very special guest. Take it away, Kristen. That's right. We got the great, the hilarious, the awesome, Paul Feig to join us. Yes. Oh (laughs) my goodness. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. It's an honor. Oh my God. The the honor is all uh, on this side of the microphone. Yes. (laughs) In case you don't know who Paul is, he's the director of some of our favorites, including Ghostbusters, the 2016 version, which I maintain is the best one. That's my opinion. A Simple Favor, all sorts of great classic film-influenced movies. And you're a big Bogdanovich fan, which I always say I wish more directors and actors had a list on their IMDb page where they listed the stuff that they liked. It would make our jobs a lot easier in finding people to talk about pre-1970s films. And of course, you have two shows coming out just in this month. You have Minx and Welcome to Flatch, right? Yeah, yes. we're definitely very excited about that. I know. I've I've seen Minx. I've watched almost all of it. Oh, you have? Um, oh, good. Yeah. oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's awesome. I don't want to spoil too much for people, but <laughs> it's not at all like what we're talking about with, no. uh, with Bogdanovich. <laughs> but, but funny, I mean, it's funny as a Bogdanovich uh, comedy. Definitely. I'm curious, though, what attracted you to want to put your name on both of these very different projects? I just thought they were great. You know, uh, Ellen Rappaport brought us the idea for Minx. It wasn't even a script yet. It was a pitch. And uh, she walked in with this giant stack of Playgirl magazines that she'd been collecting and doing research on and told us kind of the story of the beginnings of Playgirl magazine and said she wanted to do like a fictional version of that with um, really fun, funny characters that could be, you know, a total kind of feminist story. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I thought it was funny and I loved the characters. I loved the world. I, I was born in 1962, so I grew up in the 70s. So the idea of shooting a, another thing in the 70s, like my TV series Freaks and Geeks, which was 1980, but it was essentially the 70s in Michigan. <laughs> I just, I, I fell in love with it. And, you know, she wrote an amazing script. We couldn't sell it anywhere. First of all, we took it all over town. Nobody wanted it. Nobody. And I thought for sure people would go crazy for it. They just kind of were afraid of it, I think. Because, you know, it's got nudity in it. But it's not a salacious show by any stretch of the imagination. It, it's a very workmanlike workplace comedy, if you will, you know, with naked people in it whose yeah. job happens to be to get naked. You know, what I liked also is it's not about like a sex magazine or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's a nudie magazine. But no, we couldn't sell it anywhere. And then it was dead. I mean, it was literally dead. 
And then the pandemic came along and TBS kind of merged with HBO and it became HBO Max. And we had had a really great pitch at TBS, but they couldn't take it at the time because of their standards and practices. And suddenly they called up and said, like, hey, we want to do it. And so this, it was this wonderful back from the dead project and we got to make it. And it was a great cast. And, you know, Ophelia Loveybond is the star. And, and Jake Johnson, who just, it's the role he was born to play. He's so good. <laughs> and then on the other side, I've got Welcome to Flatch, which comes out the exact same day, March 17th. I'm not sure when this was show was hitting the air, but uh, your show is hitting Around the same time. So, so Okay, uh, good. We're either out or we're coming out on the 17th. And this is a remake, uh, Americanization of a BBC show called This Country which is absolutely hilarious. It's kind of like the office in a small town, for lack of a better term, about these two cousins who just live in this tiny town and like a crew follows them around and they get in all kinds of trouble. And it's hilariously funny. And I'm just super proud of that. I wrote two episodes. I directed the first three episodes. And I just think it's the greatest comfort food comedy you've ever seen. I mean, it's just going to, I think, I think it's going to become everybody's new favorite show, like the way that The Office was. Exactly. Well, if my opinion, what little opinion I tend to have is anything, I think they're worth watching. So, <laughs> yay. <laughs> You're the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> so much of your work, whether it's something like Minks, which is literally set in the 70s, or, or something like A Simple Favor, which has a lot of references. I mean, how do you look at classic filmdom and bringing it to an audience? Part of why we do this show is, you know, hopefully get people that maybe don't watch stuff pre-1980 to watch stuff that's good. How do you look at that era and bringing it forward in your work? I love all old movies. And now that I'm, you know, I turned 60 this year. So, hi-oh. So, a lot of movies to me (laughs) that other people think are old don't seem old. But I'm going to say old movies, like basically anything post, yeah, 1980, I'll take that. I think they're the greatest because they were really well written. I think the representation when you get into (laughs) racially, no, not so great when you're in the 30s and 40s, but gender wise, pretty good. You know, women had really great equal roles in those movies. And I love all the comedies out of the 30s and 40s, all the Thin Man movies and anything with William Powell and Myrna Loy, I'm I'm there. You know, and Cary Grant, all all this. But they were really funny. The stories were really kind of well put together. It was not so much about kind of style as far as like shooting style. It was really about snappy dialogue, really fun acting, slightly elevated acting a lot of times, but kind of in a fun way. And I just kind of, I miss that in a lot of movies now, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm never the guy like, oh, these days they don't know what they're doing. Like movies now are, are really great too, but you know, I'm personally not like superhero genre is not kind of my thing. I really appreciate it. And I think they're really cool. The, the irony is when you see like the good ones, when like Marvel does it really well, they bring that kind of fun dialogue and play and, and take themselves seriously, but then again, not so seriously. And I think that's really nice. So the influence is all over. I think the more you can watch those old movies just from a like a storytelling point, I think it's a great thing for any filmmaker. And I, I think any young filmmaker should really kind of force themselves to not be afraid of black and white movies. When you're working on something, you know, I wrote far too much about A Simple Favor and, and all of the <laughs> classic film references, whether it's costumes <laughs> or the femme fatale. I mean... Are you a director that likes to, I know some directors really love to do like overt homage, you know, are you a fan of homage or do you just like to convey 
kind of the spirit of classic filmdom in your style. Yeah, I think it's more of the spirit. I'm not a, I try to avoid homage because uh, it's funny when I was in film school, they always said the fancy word for stealing is homage. So, <laughs> so I just kind of go, okay. But at the same time, I like doing genres. If you look at my movies, they're all kind of genres, my take on a genre. I like more the tropes of classic genre films and then twisting those because we all know those like you know when i did spy is like we all know kind of the tropes of a spy movie so i could take this and flip it because i you know had melissa mccarthy in the middle of it so we could subvert those a bit and the heat was all about that and you know and in simple favor in a way too i mean simple favor to me was like a nod to an old hitchcock movie just because I love those old Hitchcock movies, but I didn't want to copy a Hitchcock movie. What I longed for was what Hitchcock used to do, which is, you know, had a very serious story, very tense, thriller thriller story, but then had these really funny characters around the main characters. Even the main characters are, you know, are fun, but then there's really quirky main characters, you know, characters around them. Like I was just rewatching for fun North by Northwest the other day. And like the mother character is hilarious, you know, and she just keeps getting her son in all this trouble. But that's great. And, And I think for a long time, a lot of thrillers were kind of like, we have to be dead serious all the time. And I was like, let's bring some fun back. Like the stakes should be really high. The danger has to be real, but let's have fun along the way. And so I love that. I love what they now call, you know this, Kristen, mixed genre, which drives me crazy because it's always like an excuse to go like, well, we can't do that because it's not a straight comedy. It's mixed genre. It's like, well, I know I know it's something that's very mixed genre. It's called life. So before we get into it, here's a short little ad for our Patreon If you are a fan of old Hollywood, classic entertainment, and the joy of pop culture history in all its forms, please subscribe to our Patreon page like these wonderful people, Christine Meyer, Danny, David Floyd, Jacob Haller, MCF, and Rachel Kramarchuk. Our Patreon is located at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. A special reminder, if we can get up to 100 subscribers, we're looking forward to posting a deep dive into an infamous movie in ticklish business circles. Does love truly mean never having to say you're sorry? Well, if we can get to our goal, you'll hear all of our opinions on love story. Trust me, there's a lot of them. Also, stay tuned for details on a special giveaway we're doing to coincide with the TCM Classic Film Festival. We're working with Breakfast at Dominique's to give away a special coffee prize pack. We'll have more details coming your way before the fest. Now, back to the show. There you go. <laughs> that brings us into talking Bogdanovich and what's up, Doc. I know you've told this story, I think, a, a couple places about the first time you watched that movie. But for people that have not heard it, and it's a great story, you know, what, can you talk about the first time you saw this movie and discovered Bogdanovich? Yeah, I was, God, I mean, I must have been, what What, what year did it come out? 71? 72. 72, yeah. So I was I was um, like nine years old then and got taken to the theater. I don't remember why we went to see it other than I think my mom, you know, my mom and dad were big Barbara Streisand fans. And so we went to see it and I didn't know what it was. And it just blew my mind. It was so funny and the audience was going nuts the whole time. But to me, I love cars and all that stuff. So like, it's got a big car chase in the middle of San Francisco. But I just, everything about it made me laugh. The characters were so over the top extreme, but then Barbara Streisand was like so cool in the middle of it all. And, and you know, Ryan O'Neill was, you know, what I did not know is, you know, the, he's the Cary Grant and she's the, you know, the Catherine Hepburn. But I had no idea. To me, this was just an original movie that was wacky. And I didn't know it was an homage to screwball comedies. And I just thought it was the greatest thing I've ever seen. I just had my mother take me back. I saw it 10 times in the theater, which, you know, not like watching a videotape like younger generations do. But no, this is actually going to the theater and paying money to see it. And I couldn't get enough of it. And it's just always stuck with me to this day. And I, I think I still... 
I'm inspired by it when I'm putting my comedies together because I think the tone is really funny because it's very extreme, but you kind of buy everything. Nothing feels false. You know, it's not like goofy. It's just nuts. <laughs> Kim, do you want to give people a brief overview of the plot? What if yeah. we can't construct a plot quickly? Because there's a <laughs> lot that happens <laughs> yes. in this movie. What's up, Doc? Essentially follows the zany happenings around four mixed up overnight backs in San Francisco in the early 1970s. The movie stars Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill, as we talked about with, I would say, one of the more formidable supporting casts oh I've dealt with in a long time. Mm-hmm. Madeline Kahn in her first role, the always delightful Kenneth Mars, who I will always take time to trumpet, Austin Pendleton, John Hillerman, Peter Bogdanovich, directed from a script by Buck Henry, David Newman, and Robert Benton. Yep, there you go. And, and uh, yeah, four identical bags, red plaid, one's filled with jewels, rich ladies' jewels, yes. one's filled, filled with top secret government <laughs> secrets, one is filled with Howard Bannister's rocks, because he's a musicologist and finds, it's nuts anyway, he finds music out of the tone in minerals, and then one is just Barbara, Barbara Streisand's underwear. <laughs> I remember seeing this, the first time I saw this was at the TCM Classic Film Festival at the Egyptian Theater, which is a pretty great way to see this. And I had always been sold. I don't know, guys. I probably shouldn't have expected this. I was told that this was a straight remake of Bringing Up Baby, which it kind of is. Yeah, it's sold as that. I got, exactly. So I expected more like Bringing Up Baby, which... Whoever told me that is now in great trouble because they really (laughs) caused some trouble there. But I think what I find so great about this movie is that it's Barbara Streisand's fifth movie. And considering that it was just her fifth film, how she commands the screen, that famous what's up doc line. I mean, the minute she shows up in this film, you're just captivated. And I mean... Paul, we talked about Barbara, you you just mentioned it, but as a director who's worked with so many amazing heroines, can you talk about Barbara and her intro? Because that is utterly, how do you look at it? Because it is utterly insane how much power she brings in just like a two second look. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what, you know, one of the things that made me realize, how how do I say this the right way? It made me realize as time went on and I watched women's roles getting worse and worse, that you go like, I grew up watching these really strong, you know, I hate strong female character, I hate that that term, but just like this three-dimensional, hilarious, powerful woman who comes in and she looks gorgeous and she's dressed so cool with that hat and like a tank top and her little ears sticking out with that long hair and stuff. That is like just the ultimate role. And, and, and I will defend your friends there, Kristen, because it is very, very much like bringing a baby in the dynamic of, you know, over the top woman sees a guy and immediately falls in love with him and just says, I'm going to get him and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get rid of his fiance, <laughs> you know, which, which sounds like kind of a reductive sort of relationship, but it just works really well because she's so powerful in the way she does it and just bamboozles this guy the whole time. <laughs> and, and poor Madeline Kahn, I mean, what they put her through is nothing like what they put the, the wife through, you know, the, the fiance through and bringing up baby. <laughs> exactly. And well, I think that's the thing that I appreciate about this movie and Kim, you feel free to back me up there. Of course. Is that this is a movie that has the bringing up baby tropes. I mean, Ryan O'Neill was the straight-laced 
kind of nebbish dude, but he looks like Ryan O'Neal in the 1970s, which I'm right. like, nebbish. But they put nerdy glasses on him, so he's a nerd. Exactly. <laughs> they put nerdy glasses on him, but he's still like semi-dressed at one point. And you're just kind of like, oh. Uh, and, <laughs> but with the Barbara, collar because his shirt rips off. Exactly. exactly. And Barbara, <laughs> Barbara is just looking like Barbara. And I think that's the one thing that I wish the movie did differently. You read Madeline Kahn's biography and one of the big criticisms she had, even though she worked with Bogdanovich again was that he made her so unattractive and shrill in the movie and she already had body image issues and I'm like I love Eunice Burns because she's the one normal character in this movie that's just like what is happening here oh yeah totally wish Madeline Kahn felt more confident in that role because she really did feel like it was more of a frump performance than she would but it's a great beginning. yeah well I'm, I'm always very sensitive to the, like shrewish kind of uh, portrayals like you know the hangover like what they did to poor Rachel you know it's just yeah. like that's ridiculous she's just like the worst person in the world and you're like come on really but I, I think Eunice is just she's just trying to take care of this guy and make sure he does the right thing and she's, you know, she's nutty, but every character in the movie is like nuts. So so she's living in a world of nuts. So that's why it doesn't bother me. But I mean, his choices with, you know, her in that, that turquoise blue dress and matching shoes when she's going up at the, the docks, like the worst place in the world. Hello, 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 hello. I mean, it's like, it's just the funniest thing in the world. I remember my father just howling with laughter next to me. And, and I think that's what made me kind of love the movie so much, too, is my dad found it so funny. I think what I didn't notice this first time around, too, is Barbara's so modern, and they make Eunice look like it's the 1950s. She's got, like, the flip. Yeah, exactly. Kim and I are doing, like, the flip hair. And I do (laughs) love how Bogdanovich played with time period. You know, Last Picture Show, we all know, like, it's very much defined to an era. But here it's like he's blending all these disparate time periods in a way that is so subtle, but really just makes you think, like, this is a moment out of time almost where everything. Yeah, no, it's like the it's like the 30s meets the 60s with a touch of the 70s in there in kind of a great way. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, you know, like that party at Austin Pendleton's house is so funny with the giant, you know, drawing of feet that comes down eventually and hits somebody in the head and all. I look at that place and now I go like, I want to live in that place. Like, that's some really cool, cool design. <laughs> I wanted to take back to a little bit more of a broad question. I read some of your interviews talking about What's Up, Doc, and how you weren't really familiar with classic film at that point. Mm-hmm. And so much has been written about Bogdanovich's style and the homages and how he incorporated so much. Did that make getting into classic film more accessible for you? I'd love to hear you talk about your history just getting into classic film. Well, honestly, it was, I knew that movie so well. Like, you know, I knew it by heart that when I got to film school, and they started showing us old movies. That was when it was just, I was watching Bringing a Baby for the first time and just like my mind was getting blown. Like, wait a minute, this is that movie. <laughs> I didn't even know. Like I hadn't even, you know, in Michigan, nobody goes like, oh, that's an homage to, you know, the screwball films. You're like, okay, it's a funny comedy. And only when I get to film school, do they put this on and you have this revelation. And then I start go, you know, watching His Girl Friday and, and, and all the other ones. That's when it starts to put together for you. And that's when I started going like, I got to watch these old movies. And that's why I really fell for the, for the old comedies, screwball comedies of the, the 30s and 40s. I have this great love of William Powell. I just think he's the greatest and really an unsung comedy hero, you know. But then, but then Cary Grant, which is a much you know, easier one to pick on, but he is great. He is so funny to have that kind of handsome quality, but that 
befuddled delivery that he has. I love that he's playing his version of a nerd in bringing a baby, which is all, I, well, I just, uh, well, now, you, you know, and it's all kind of, but it works in a weird way, you know, it, because he commits to it so hardcore and then the, the story they construct around it. And that, to me, just to go back on, on that movie, that movie is one of the greatest movies, I think, ever because it's so economical in its use of characters. There's only like seven characters in that movie and they just keep circling back in, which again was, I think, you know, definitely uh, uh, inspiration for Bogdanovich on this movie. But you meet one guy, you know, the the, the crazy uh, psychologist, and then suddenly we end up at his house because she he ends up being friends with Catherine Hepburn's character, and, but she's this sort of hurricane in the middle of all of them. And I like that. Like, the women's roles back then were so much fun. You know, I love Irene Dunn. I have a real love of Irene Dunn. I thought she was great in those movies. Yeah, so I, I think it all affects. The way I tell stories, I'm kind of an old-fashioned filmmaker. I just try to play in modern genres, you know? I got to throw out, since you brought up some great leading men, everybody who listens to this podcast knows that I would not be able to get through this episode without mentioning that I don't like Ryan O'Neill. <laughs> He's the one element of this movie that I just, I feel nothing for. Everybody else is so good. Maybe it's because the residual hatred for love story is so, right. like, in the head. But... I mean, I'm curious, Kim and Paul, am I wrong on the Ryan O'Neill thing? I will say he's suited for this film just because he his job is to look befuddled and get yeah. out of Barbara's way. But at the same time, it just never got him in the 70s. Still don't get it. I don't, maybe I never will get it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll fully admit when I was a kid, I think he was the one I was sort of the most had the most kind of difficulty with because I was he was the only one I kind of had moments of going like, I don't know if I completely believe what you're doing, you know, and everybody else was just so inhabited those characters. But but then he still made me laugh, you know. So there's moments I really like. We're tapped inside the Chinese dragon, or what? You know that those things. But then other moments when I, he felt false to me. So I a hundred percent hear what you're saying because I I have grappled with that over the years. And I ended up I actually worked with Ryan O'Neill as an actor back on a TV show called Good Sports. And I just came in like, oh my god, all I did is pepper him with questions about what's up, Doc. To the point he's like, all right, we can't talk about this anymore. So okay, I'll I'll lay off, but I want to know more. I think that Paper Moon is probably the best. Thing encapsulation of him and Bogdanovich I would be right there with you just being like tell me Madeline Kahn stories like yeah, I, I want to know Kim what what do you think I mean you know I've waxed my wet rhapsodic uh, about my dislike for Ryan <laughs> O'Neill in that last I mean it's not a spoiler but that last scene Ryan O'Neill takes a, you know a second to knock love story himself yeah exactly. I, which is I really was, funny it's it's such a great moment and I will say as somebody who's struggled with him but I mean I watched Peyton Place behind Paper Moon this is my second favorite Ryan O'Neill role he's struggled in some parts but he fits with what Bogdanovich is trying to do and I can't knock him because yeah I've watched and he makes me laugh just as much Okay, well, I'll keep trying. Maybe it finally changed my mind at some point. There you go. Uh, <laughs> Kim, I'm going to throw it back to you. What fascinates me sitting here talking about this, and we've discussed 
these female characters. Kristen, you said Madeline Kahn looks at this as kind of a frumpy role. But mm. to me, this works because these two are on such an even keel. Yeah. And when I think on your films, I think to your leading women just excel. You create such great women and bring such tremendous women to the screen. And looking at it in a bigger picture, how do you feel a film like this? Is there a way? Have you looked at it? How a film like this influenced you as a filmmaker and a creator? Um, very much so. It showed me that you could have really extreme characters in extreme situations and still make it feel real, but make it fun. You know, and real is a very relative term. I kind of bristle sometimes. People go, oh, your movies are very broad. Like, I, that, to me, I don't like that term because broad to me means you're not paying attention to the emotional reality of the characters. You're just going for jokes. And look, I love Marx Brothers movies more than anything. Those are broad. There's no emotional basis in those movies whatsoever. It's all subversion and anarchy. And it's fantastic. And I love that. But, you know, I, I couldn't make a movie like that, you know, because I, I just really wanted to do the funniest stuff I could do that I believed. And... I always say it's a Midwestern thing, but maybe I'm just being, you know, being regional. In the Midwest, we have a real high bullshit meter that goes off if we go like, that feels false, that feels fake. And I'm really in tune with that when I watch in comedies actors who I go like, I don't think you like this character. I think you're looking down on this character and you're going, look at the, I'm not this guy, so let's make fun of this dummy that I'm playing. And it's like, I don't have any interest in watching somebody do that because that's just kabuki theater you know as opposed to a really extreme personality that you know in life you know we all have friends who are who are nuts but they're not you know then i've been out with people who have friends who he's really funny and then this person's being outrageous but you're like i i don't buy what you're doing you're like a normal person trying to act outrageous and be crazy and that's not fun because now i'm just like annoyed with you and so that's what I always have to get to with my movies. And it all comes from casting. You know, I've watched Saturday Night Live my entire life. And it's the difference between a great guest host and a bad guest host. And the bad guest host, you see them in these comedy sketches and they're going really big and they're making faces and all this. And you're like, oh, God, like you just don't have the gene. It's just not there. Don't go back to drama. Don't do comedy. You know, but, but that's when I'm doing a, when I'm casting a movie and there's somebody I want to use who isn't known for doing comedy. I don't audition them. I like take them out to lunch and sit there and we just talk and go like, oh, you are funny. I just need to see what's funny about you and bring it into this. And I really feel like Bogdanovich found that th he cast it perfectly, but then he found people who can do that. I mean, Kenneth Mars, come on. I mean, who's funnier than Kenneth Mars, who just commits so hardcore to an absolutely insane character with a ridiculous accent? Although I have to give a shout out to one of my favorite characters in the movie who I think is so funny is it bernard hiller is that his name the guy who plays the judge i think uh, you're right i know exactly who you're talking about yeah he was yeah, right. he'd been in everything that yeah. guy he always showed up as an old i think he was born old he was always old in every movie you ever saw him <laughs> but he's so funny it's a kid the funniest line ever written to me was look what you did you made me smash my lifesavers i thought that was the funniest thing i swear that had to be an ad lib because i think he was just he accidentally did it and then he but the way he delivers it is is so angry and so filled with contempt it's just brilliant but sorry i i deviated all over the place on your question but it, to me it's it's all about finding the realest way to do insane extreme stuff Going back to defending poor Ryan O'Neill there, it's, <laughs> that's exactly what you're tapping into there because he wasn't doing that much comedy at that time because right. he was, was what, just right off of 
paint and place. So he was doing a heavy drama. Mm-hmm. So that story was 71. So, so that was, yeah. Well, exactly. So right before, yeah. Soapy, yeah. He, he was stuck in soaps and <laughs> Let, let's just say it. Comedy is hard, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, oh, very it's, true. Yeah. Because in order for comedy to work, it has to look effortless. You know, and what happens is people don't do comedy go, oh, I got to really push and push. I hire a lot of really great comedy people, but like, especially you get like day players sometimes. And I'm always going like, do less, do less, do less. Because people come in, you know, and fair enough. I was in the, you know, I was an actor for 15 years. You come in just like with a head of steam of like, I really got to prove myself and all this. And it's just like, calm down, throw it away, throw it away. I'm telling you. And, and if people can throw stuff away, then they become funny because then they become themselves. But, you know, you need a, a, a good director to kind of stay on you about that. And, and there's some, you know, I'm not going to name names of directors, but there's some directors I watch and I go, they aren't that good at comedy. So if they get somebody who is good at kind of improv, they'll just go, oh, my God, that's so great. And they'll just kind of put it all in. And so you watch and go like, oh, my God. And like, if you knew comedy, you knew you, you should have taken those jokes out. And it would have been so much funnier and not so sweaty, which is something in, in, in the comedy business. We're always talking about, if it, is it sweaty? Which means, is it working really hard? And you, you so many performances, you go like, oh, that's so sweaty because God, I just they're just working up a storm. And they're just, just running roughshod over the comedy right now. I'm going to have to use that term in more of my common parlance. I've not heard that. And now I love it. <laughs> yep, it's very, it's one of our tropes we have. <laughs> well, I, I want to shout out, I think, you know, we were talking about supporting characters. And for me, it's always weird as a child of the 90s, not to date myself, but as a child of the 90s to watch stuff like this. Like Kenneth Mars, I'll tell you, he's King Triton from The Little uh, so every time he opens his mouth, I'm just like trying to hear it in my head. It's like when I listen to Geraldine Page and stuff and mm. I'm like, oh, the rescuers like and she'll talk and she'll say something and I'll be like, oh, I hear it. But I feel like the 1970s, like the 1960s, too, was the great time for the care. We call them character actors now. Yeah. But, you know, mm. so many of these performers just getting to really elevate themselves and work amongst this ensemble you know and I think Bogdanovich was really a master at taking a performer like you and Kim said and really just kind of letting them try something at the same time I do like Bogdanovich's own attempts when we saw this at TCM they showed a clip from like the making of where it's Bogdanovich Hmm. on the piano performing the song as Barbara so that Ryan O'Neill like gets I guess like they were trying to do like the tracking or like you know the blocking of stuff and I just I think that that's hilarious to see because I think what people love about Bogdanovich is how much she loves movies and anytime I'm assuming as a director you're acting out sequences from a movie I mean you've got to be into it so (laughs) yeah they're in your head whether you want them to be or not so (laughs) Sticking with Bogdanovich, because we, we had just talked about, and I, I love that quote that you mentioned, homage is basically stealing. So much of Bogdanovich's work is taking from little bits, because he's talked about the final sequence in What's Up Doc being almost completely lifted from Buster Keaton movies. What's always fascinated me is looking back on his work from later in the 70s, you know, something like Nickelodeon might not have worked. And a lot of the reviews were actually really critical of the use, and even in What's Up Doc, the use of the 1930s callbacks. And I'm just really interested. You said you saw it in theaters when it came out. I just love to know how that played 
And I'd love to hear you talk more about how that struck. I mean, it played through the roof. That's what, you know, Mm -hmm. that was one. I've had a few kind of religious moments in movie theaters, you know, and this was one of them. The other was when they re-released Animal Crackers, the Marx Brothers movie, and I went with my mom to the same big theater, the Americana in Dearborn, which is the big place where you saw blockbusters, and it was filled with college students in the middle of the day, and it tore the house down again, and you're just like, oh my god, that was for me going like, wait, this movie that's 50 years old at least is destroying college kids, like how great is that? And that was the same thing that happened with with What's Up, Doc. But it felt more modern because clearly it was. And also, I mean, maybe my mom and dad were aware of screwball comedies. I know they'd seen them, but even they didn't kind of go, you know, that was an homage. So it just, to us in Michigan who were not film people, we are just like, this is hilarious. And that's all we knew. I kind of bristle when, you know, critics or, or, or just, you know, writers kind of put you down for things like that. If it's stealing, sure. But this wasn't stealing. It, it This was... I mean, this was true homage, not in the steely way. It's like when I got in trouble for doing Ghostbusters from a bunch of people. All you hear is like, you know, there's no new ideas, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I get that. I get that. But at the same time, you go, but here's an idea that is just great. And it was done twice. Let's not just, you know, shelve that idea. The idea of funny people, scientists taking on the paranormal with science. You know, that's just a great idea. What you can't, you know, why just leave that sitting? That's saying, like saying, you know, after the first Iron Man, well, okay, they did a superhero movie, so you can't make any more. And I feel that with comedy. Like, you know, I would love to make my version of the What's Up Doc, you know, a screwball comedy that just has some big inciting incident in the middle that then causes chaos. But, you know, he has to have, to have the great story. And he had the great story, come a great original story, and had great characters and cast it fantastically. So it's a new thing, even though it is tipping its hat to something else. It brought that style of comedy to a whole new generation of people. And that's what's wrong with that. An audience sitting and laughing, having the greatest time for two hours is a, is a crime that let us be guilty, you know? This is the reminder that people criticizing Ghostbusters are incorrect people. Thank um, you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that, that brings up something interesting. You know, Bog- Bogdanovich was making movies up until just a couple of years ago. He did the, his Buster Keaton doc. And, you know, you think of on the opposite end of that spectrum, Quentin Tarantino saying, you know, no director works well over a certain age and he's going to retire when he hits 10 films. I'm right. curious. I don't buy that, by the way. It's, I mean, <laughs> he's not retiring. Not. There's no way. How many times do we hear Steven Soderbergh say he's retiring? Exactly. I'm curious, though. I mean, <laughs> which side of the spectrum do you look at? Can a great director, should they have an endpoint? I know, you know, Tarantino's big thing is Billy Wilder continued to make movies till, right. you know, he died and, you know, the last couple of ones weren't good. I mean, right. should a great director have a retirement age or how do you look at that? I don't think so, but I do think that we have to be aware of our age as we do it. You know, it's funny, like people are like, you're going to bring Freaks and Geeks back? I'm turning 60 this year. I don't think I'm going to do a great job, you know, with a teen teen show. I can't even watch Euphoria. Just like, like, oh my God, it's too much for me. So clearly I'm either going to have to do like a movie about, you know, kids back in 40 years ago, which, you know, I I did it already. As a man who, who, who was really into men's fashion, you know, or men's style, I look at it the same way. And I always say to guys like, look at your head on top of what you're wearing. You know, so, you know, we read 
read these, you know, Esquire and GQ and everything. Go, look at that style. And oh my God, look at those guys look so cool in it. There's like guys in their 20s, you know. So then you put it on, you're like, I look really cool. And you look in the mirror and you don't look at your head sitting on top of it and going, like, look at that old goddamn head sitting on that too young outfit. And it's ridiculous. That's the same thing, I think, with movies. As you pick the movies, the good thing we have with movies is it's who you use. But it's also what is your voice? And your voice is the thing that can get old. But it's up to you to find either the things that fit your voice or to surround yourself with people who can vet you and tell you that's old fashioned. That's not how it would be done these days. Listen to the actors. You know, you're going to have young actors, I guarantee it, unless you're doing, you know, you know, an older person's movie, which is fine, too. But listen to them, you know, and I've heard so many stories. And I'm not, again, I'm not going to name names of like, you know, older directors who are doing comedy still. And they get these funny people and they, these people try to do an improv or something They're like, don't you dare. Don't tell me what's funny. Like I would say, the minute you say, don't tell me what's funny, just get out of the business, you know, because it's it, it's winding down. It's over. You're going to put out a movie that is not funny except to you and, and you know, all your other friends in AARP. And I can say that because I'll probably be a member very soon. You know, so, so you just have to be aware of that. But if you are aware of that and if you are stay modern and if you don't become, I hate this and all oh, that music and oh, I can't stand, you know, even though you're getting old, you can't grow old, but you also can't pretend that you're young. You know what I mean? Well, with that same thought in mind, I mean, I know that it's not a day that passes without somebody saying, you don't need to get in the film industry and know about classic film dumb. True statement or false statement on your end? Well, <laughs> sure, sure. You don't have to. Of course not. You know, but it's better if you do. You don't, again, you don't have to. It's, I'm really close friends with Jim Giannopoulos, who, you know, who used to run Fox and Paramount. And we always lament about, like, you know, he he was always go like, I get to this meeting and I, you know, I get these executives in their 30s and I throw out like some old movie and they, nobody's seen it. And they, it infuriated him. I kind of feel that way too. Not that I get infuriated, but I'm kind of like, oh man, you should kind of know this stuff. It's the whole idea of like, well, that that's old and they told stories differently. You know, the big telling thing is like when you see somebody like do a, you know, it's supposed to be an old movie and they recreate some old movie in, in something modern. And the acting's always like big and over the top. And you're like, have you ever seen an old movie? <laughs> like, or did you just watch terrible ones? Because it's not really that way. Sure, there is a presentationality sometimes to that acting, but it's still grounded, you know, even if it's a crazy musical, you know, you watch Top Hat, it's still, you know, there's still moments you believe in it. I think you should have, you don't have to have, you should have a working knowledge because I think it will put more gray areas into your storytelling because those old movies you know, other than like making, you know, references occasionally to World War II or to some actor that was famous at the time, they're very about character and they're very behavioral and it's about human, you know, relations. And that never changes. I mean, that's, you know, that doesn't age at all. So you watch these movies, there's some story in the middle of it that's a very human character-driven story that you get hooked into. Those old movies, you can watch a great old movie, you get really hooked into those stories because they'll go dark and they'll go all these different places. And and they're really, you know, sometimes I think they're, you know, I never be the, the old guy like, oh, it's better back then. But I think they're a lot better written a lot of the times, you know, at least for entertaining an audience, you know. And, and that to me is the biggest thing. I feel, and look, there's other filmmakers who do different kind of movies, but I feel in general, those of us in the business and commercial movies, 
Our job is to entertain an audience first and foremost. We can teach them something, sneak it in. You know, we got to make them feel something, and we got to entertain them. And that is your job. Don't try to chase awards. Don't try to make an important movie if it's if you're only doing it to win an award. You know, make the important movie, be, but but entertain people while it's being important. What are those classic films that if you're flipping on TV and you happen to see that you'll stop and watch no matter how many times you've seen it? Well, I mean, again, back to my screwball comedies, you know, any of bringing up baby, his girl Friday, uh, you know, anything, any of the thin man movies, honestly, I don't, during the pandemic, I got to literally watch every movie William Powell ever, ever made. And there's some like really old ones. There's one called like lawyer man. That's like, it looks like it was shot, you know, like in a tin can, but it's this amazing story of this guy who's a lawyer and how he goes through all these things, but it's entertaining, but it gets really dark, you know, but then there's another one about like, Oh, it's something about divorce, something divorce and a divorce party. It's not, that's not it, but it's him and Myrna Loy. And it's just super funny. And my wife, Lori, and I are watching going like, this is hilarious. Why do we never hear this movie? You know, because that was back when movies were like TV shows. They'd put them on, you know, once a week, a new movie double feature would hit and you'd go to see it. So a lot of these old movies get lost. And some of them, I had to like go onto YouTube and find these terrible copies of them. But that, you know, but also, but then I'm a big fan of old monster movies. Like I can never not watch Bride of Frankenstein or the original Frankenstein or the original Dracula. I mean, those James Whale movies are just destroy me how good. I mean, I think Bride of Frankenstein is possibly the greatest movie ever made. And it's nuts. I mean, it gets there's some stuff in that movie that is so nuts. You can tell they all went into it with the right attitude and went, we're going to take this serious, but we also know this is ridiculous what we're doing, but we're going to treat it dead serious. The Bill Powell Myrna Loy one, was it I Love You Again or Double Wedding? Double wedding. That's the oh, one. Okay. Double wedding. That's, that's, that's of course, I went to divorce. I don't know why. Double <laughs> wedding. It's something happy, not divorce. <laughs> no, that's exactly. a really fun movie. Exactly. I mean, between that and, and James Whale, I mean, you can't really go wrong. Those are just the, the best of all of them. Yeah, and Todd Browning. Well, hats off to Todd oh my, Browning, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Todd Browning, I mean, is the resident supporter of freaks from, yeah. from Todd Browning. I mean, come <laughs> on. Uh, other than What's Up, Doc, I'm curious, is there another Bogdanovich movie that you want to shout out that if you haven't seen it, like, people need to see yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, you got to see all the movies, really. Last Picture Show and all. They're all so good. I mean, just just literally go down the line and, and watch them. I always feel bad for him in a way, like, he got such a target on his back because he became successful so fast. And, you know, they really, I think it was Nickelodeon, the one that they were just like, the knives came out. You know, it's not my favorite movie, but at the same time, there's something so terrible when, and I don't, I mean, I don't know if I feel like the industry does that quite as much as it used to, where they just go like, we're going to take this person down because they've been successful, you know, but, but the standard, it has to be very high now too. I mean, Social media has changed everything. I mean, gone are the days when you could market a, sh- a shitty movie <laughs> and kind of get two weeks out of it before people all talk to one. Like, I, I heard that, you know, that movie's not good. <laughs> you know, now, oof, look out, man, if you're dead opening weekend. But I love that. I think, it, you know, movies should be a, mer- a meritocracy. And, you you know, anything that ups the game, it's nice that there's not as many, like, crappy movies. You know, you know, when I was growing up, there was really bad movies that were coming out. And you, they do these trailers. You go, we would get sucked in all the time. Like, that tr- movie looks great. And then you sit there and it's like, oh, my God, everything great was in that trailer and everything else is just padding. I want to say when we when Kim, when you did the last picture show episode last week, what was it? Merck Harris said that if 
Bogdanovich had been on Twitter, he'd have been the first film. It'd be, it'd be an obnoxious member of film Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> see, I'm team at long last love. That is oh, the yeah. one that really gets skewered. Yeah. But he had those three films and then just between the PR, it sounds like the PR and that he was such a reflective he was the film historian's filmmaker. And yeah. after his passing, I t- I started at Targets and went all the way through. I watched nice. everything because I had watched only the big three and then I kind of yeah. filled it in. Yeah. But he had such a love for film. And that's mm. what struck me really about well, his work. Don't you think? I mean, he was he's the original Tarantino, you know. Oh, I mean, agreed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, without Bogdanovich, I don't know if there'd be Tarantino, you know, be, just because it, to be that influenced by those things. And I really respect that. I'm kind of not that way. And I sometimes because I don't <laughs> big admission. I don't watch tons of movies. And that's I hate to say that because I, I'm always kind of going like I want to come up with original ideas. But then I get caught in the problem of like, I go, hey, I have this great idea. And people go like, well, that's this movie. And you're like, well, oh, well, I never heard of that movie, but. Well, does it count if I came up with it on my own? <laughs> like, can I do it? <laughs> so so I, I'm not the guy who, you know, can go like, oh, it's for this, 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 and this. I've got, you know, my, my touchstone ones. But, but that's why I always try to catch up on the old movies again. But I'd much rather watch old movies. I love foreign cinema, but I'm, I've got so much I got to catch up on with just American cinema that I try, but... Uh. You know, you, you talked about genres at the, the top of this episode. You've done a biomage, a little film noir. I mean... I keep saying a Paul Feig musical, like 30s musical. Yes. I mean, is that is that something that in in terms of like talking about movies that already exist, that would be something that would be interesting to I just need to see it. Do you know how hard (laughs) I've been trying to develop a musical? I mean, everybody, all my everybody represents me. They just it's like I'm like, find me musical because we've been trying to do one. I had an idea I thought was going to be great. And we just had the hardest time developing it. When I was in film school, I tried to make a bowling musical, and they wouldn't let me do it. It was called Pin on My Heart, the dumbest thing ever. Oh, I love that. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not. And uh, I, I couldn't get it made. <laughs> they wouldn't let me make it because even they said, that's stupid. You can't make that movie. You have to make a more serious film. It's like, why? I was such a pariah in film school. I wanted to do comedy. Everybody else wanted to be Godar. And I would do these dumb, like, little short films in, in these classes. I did one that was a cartoon called The Day Pack. Man, it ate too much. And it's just a Pac-Man game. It eats and eats. And then it goes, I don't feel good. And the kid goes, keep playing. And then it throws up all these dots. So that's the level I was at while everybody else was trying to do, do you know, a guitar film. So um, so I'm not the best, best one to ask about classy things. I mean, I'm down for all of that. There so. you go. <laughs> I just want people to laugh. <laughs> I love how you describe that. But I will say your work, you are one of those filmmakers that jumps to mind with I mean, from the scope of everything you've done from Spy to Ghostbusters, you come at things from such a love of film. You incorporate so many elements, you know, a simple favor. That's mm. There's such a love and such a passion for film there that oh, uh, have you just have you separate yourself from Bogdanovich? There surprises me because yeah, your love of it comes across your the sense of the history comes across. Oh, but, it, well, you, I, mean, for, I, I have a love of comedy of uh, comedy films. That's the thing I bring forward. I mean, you know, I love the Three Stooges. I love Laurel and Hardy. I mean, I watch those things endlessly and, and you know, Buster, Buster Keaton and and Harold Lloyd and, and Chaplin, all that. That's the stuff I've really studied. But I also loved 
TV sitcoms, you know, so I, you know, grew up watching endless, you know, reruns of Leave it to Beaver and in Taxi and, you know, The Odd Couple and all that. So to me, it's always been about characters and story and, and, and their funny interactions. And then I've always had to remind myself, okay, but try to be cinematic when you do this. But I also, when I was in film school, you know, Eddie Dimitrik was my film teacher, was my directing teacher at USC, you know, Mutiny on the Bounty, all this blacklisted. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he was, you know, old school. All my teachers were old school. I was there in, you know, from 82 to 84. So it was all old school film teachers. And Eddie Dimitrik drummed into our head. If the audience is aware of you as a director, you have failed. You know, meaning if you're doing like crazy shots, you'd always say like, there's a shit, you know, two people are sitting in front of fire and the cameras inside the fireplace looking over the log at them. He, whose point of view is that? That's just the director trying to be fancy. And, and, and so it, I've learned over the years that I think he went too far because, you know, then we were like, I was always just trying to be so realistic in everything I shot. And then, you know, like Spike Lee comes along with these amazing shots that are all going all over the place. I'm like, hey, you can't do that. And it's like, no, he can. And he's winning awards for it. It's like, oh, so I guess the rules aren't hard and fast. But I still am the guy that goes like, if I do like a stylistic shot that its goal is to put you in the head of the character or to put you in the mood of this thing, then I will do it. If it's just like, this would be a cool shot. Look at how nutty this is. Then I go like, it's got to be motivated in some way. Again, it's it's an old school way of looking at it. I Eddie Dimitrik yeah. goes, right? That yeah, I know, that blew your mind with that? That's yeah, exactly. Just mentioned that. I love that. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I, I think we buried the lead with Crossfire, Edward Dimitrik getting a shout out in this episode. So, <laughs> You're welcome, um, everyone. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm assuming he was super cool. I mean, I, yeah. I could be... Oh, Oh, he was cool. He was cool. I, I'll, I'll, all our teachers were cool. And, you know, you always wanted to get him. But that, sometimes I go, I was kind of wasted because, not wasted like I was hot. I, it was wasted on me because I hadn't seen a lot of old movies at that point. So it was almost like after film school, you're like, oh, my God, I, I had him right there. I could have asked him all these things. And we we're just like, oh, there's Eddie Demetri again, one of our teachers. And he's telling us, to, you know. So they say in a, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, youth is wasted on the young. So there you go. Exactly. Well, we don't want to take up your entire evening, uh, which I'm sure we could do uh, as evidenced by this uh, episode. (laughs) But Paul, we we appreciate you sitting down and and talking with us about classic film and Bogdanovich. In case people want to get in touch with you on social media, mm-hmm. anything you want to promote, feel free to to throw it out. We want to give you the oh, floor. Well, thank you. I have a gin. I, I created my own gin. That <laughs> it's called Arding Stalls Brilliant London Dry Gin, and it, it's currently going on sale all over all over the country. Uh, we're getting out there. But if you go to ArdingStallsGin.com, or my, Arding Stall was my my mother's maiden name, and it's a great London Dry Gin, and it, it comes in a beautiful bottle. So there's that. If I promote that and then yeah we got my two shows welcome to flatch is on fox but it also streaming on hulu and then minx is on hbo max and it's just the, they're two of the fun most fun shows you'll ever see i i'd say um with no prejudice whatsoever and then uh in september i've got a movie coming out on netflix called the school for good and evil which is a big special effects driven uh, fun it's a, i say it's like frozen meets harry potter meets uh princess bride so there you go i'm uh, so ready for that movie you have no idea it's going to be fun. It's going to be very fun. We're in the middle of getting all these effects finished, and uh, they look spectacular. And then, and then in November, I have a cocktail book coming out. So there you go. 
Exactly. Jack of all trades. I'm yes. serious. And you're also on Twitter and all the social media. Yeah, uh, you can get Twitter and uh, Instagram at just at Paul Feig, P-A-U-L-F-E-I-G. Come and see really dumb stuff that I do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, that is going to conclude this bonus episode of Ticklish Business. We once again want to thank Paul Feig for sitting down with us and talking about all the stuff we talked about. As always, you can follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter and Instagram, just searching Ticklish Biz. We're also on uh, wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, Player FM. Uh, you can also help us out by giving us uh, your dollar over at patreon.com slash biz. If we hit uh, 100 subscribers, we will talk about Ryan O'Neill and how much I despise love story. We also have a contest coming up at the upcoming TCM Classic Film Festival where we will be giving away a prize pack of Breakfast at Dominique's Classic Inspired Coffee. We're going to give more details on that as we get closer to the festival. We will also be doing an Instagram contest because you can't come to the festival, but you still want to get some really delicious coffee. So we will be back next time. 